All right, ladies and gentlemen, I want to welcome you to a brand new episode of SCAR. And SCAR stands for Seeking Courage and Redemption with Dustin Rivenbark. Now, I've got an awesome guest on the line. Before before we get into uh, uh, an introduction here, I want to give you the intent of the podcast. Kind of the why are we here, so to speak. And we're here uh, so that we can come together in such a way that we can uh, share our hardships, our trials, things that we've gone through in life in such a way that we can begin to uncover our plan, God's plan and purpose for our lives. Now, you may be listening to this and thinking, but why do I need to listen to Scar? And here's the truth, guys. We all have stuff. We all have things that can begin to accumulate in our lives, things that can go wrong, things that can stack up and build up that if we don't have an outlet, if we don't have a place where we can walk through this together, they can even change the trajectory of our lives. And so that's exactly why you need to be listening to SCAR is because we all have stuff. We all have hardships and things that we go through. And here is just a safe place that we can come together and share, share our knowledge, share our wisdom of things we've gone through, been through, fought through, and all of that. So that's why you need to listen to SCAR. Now, all of that being said, I want you guys uh, uh, to welcome Mr. Jay Schiffman. Please say hello, Jay. How's it going? Thanks so much for having me. Man, I am uh, so ecstatic about this uh, conversation. Now, you currently reside in Charleston, South Carolina. How's the weather there in Charleston? <laughs> well, it's rainy today, but uh, it's it's finally getting into what we consider. It's, it's uh, in uh, when I lived up in Ohio, what we would call college football weather, but okay. uh, down here, it's it's November through January. All right. Are you guys on pins and needles about this election right now? You know, I think that at this point, uh, it's out of all of our hands. And yeah. We're just waiting back to watch what happens like everyone else. Yep, man. That's 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 all we can do at this point. And so, that's true. Uh, so Jay is a, 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 I would say, an addiction uh, specialist, a mental health uh, coach, advisor, speaker, um, all of those things. Tell us. Tell us a little bit about about you and your story, Jay, and how you got here. Yeah, well, I, um, you know, it's it's a constantly evolving thing, and I think that's one thing this year of 2020 has taught uh, everyone. I would hope is that you kind of got to be on your toes and ready for whatever life throws at you. Yes, because uh, going into this year, you know, I started my business in 2019 after doing it on the side. Uh, sort of as a side business for for about three years and uh you know a year in is not a time when uh, most people are saying great i'm ready everything is set throw a global pandemic over my way you know <laughs> yeah uh so it, it's definitely been um something that i have had to constantly be reevaluating what's working what isn't what can i be doing more and, and i think the good thing for me is that 
when you start with your why, not not how or what, when you start with the why, which is, you know, why am I doing this? At the end of the day, I'm doing this because I believe that the issues of substance misuse and mental health are some of the defining issues of our time. Uh, it's easy to pivot. It's easy to say, okay, here's an opportunity worth doing, even if it doesn't bring me a lot of money. It's a to do and, and that has allowed me to stay current and, and keep helping people during a year when a lot of people need that help yeah and and so we're seeing substance abuse on the rise we're seeing uh, domestic abuse on the rise uh, the more and more that we see um, all of this global pandemic especially during the shutdown and all of that when you take people um, who fear isolation or or don't need isolation and you throw that global pandemic on there and put them in isolation um, it just ramps everything up and and all of that but now um, so we know that there's definitely a growing need in all of this, but but this is actually coming from a place of experience. Your passion and desire for this uh, dates back to early childhood. Tell tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so I um you know I was a was a preteen when this sort of work was really thrust upon me for the first time. Uh, I was diagnosed with ADHD as an eleven year old. And, um, you know, there's, there's definitely reasons to question that diagnosis in itself. I was a rambunctious kid, as many are, and I'm not saying that I, there wasn't cause for, for people to think that I may have ADHD, but uh, there is an over-reliance on these, these diagnoses and medications. But the real trouble came about uh, four years later when my therapist said I was showing signs of a mood disorder mm. that he later uh, gave a new name to, and that was bipolar disorder. And, and and the reason was, we know now, look, you take an 11-year-old who's going through puberty, and you put you know a lot of chemicals into their brain through an ADHD diagnosis and the, the treatment for that. And those treatments have side effects, and when you mix all of that together, you kind of get a perfect storm of, yeah. uh, especially if that person, like me, has some underlying mental health struggles. And none of it was too extreme. I still, as an adult, have a struggle with depression, anxiety. I've had OCD my whole life. So you mix all this together, and it's no wonder that a a therapist who wouldn't who who isn't great at his job might see these side effects that he himself has kind of created and say oh these are signs of a larger issue now that being said my therapist was a really well respected therapist and so it's a little shocking that he thought you know oh these are signs of a larger disorder instead of saying oh he's really having side effects of this medication i have him on you know there's a there's an old adage in medicine when you hear hoofbeats you think of horses not zebras yes and and yet my therapist saw all this and went man there's a pack of zebras coming wow so so at 11 years old you're diagnosed ADHD and you're put on medicine for that and then 4 years later somewhere around 15 you're diagnosed with bipolar and you're put on medicine for that. Now let me let me ask. <clears throat> all right, 
does the actual diagnosis itself, hearing that you're different, hearing that you have problems, and it keeps happening and you're given these medications, does that play in on some of your, um, I guess, some of your uh, actions and the way you think about yourself and the way you view yourself? Does that play in at all? Or was it strictly the uh, the drugs themselves that kind of, that kind of uh, started this spiral? Well, I'm so glad you asked that. You know, not a lot of people have the forthright to ask that question. And the fact is, uh, at the time, I was very convinced of this diagnosis. I bought into it. And and my dad embarrassingly likes to remind me that uh, I told him at the time, as as a 21-year-old or so, a couple of years later, that I was going to get the words bipolar tattooed on my arm because I was that convinced of my own diagnosis. Now, where that, that diagnosis really played in was let's fast forward you know about uh eight or so years and by this time i'm misusing all of these different medications i'm prescribed i'm on uh five or six different medications a day i am i am uh taking roughly a month worth of prescriptions in like 10 to 12 days and nothing is getting better and in fact I'm getting worse and so at the time I didn't think I had a struggle with substance misuse I thought I had you know an issue of mental illness and so then your question is very prescient because if if you're told that you have this extreme diagnosis right yeah and unlike everybody else or not everybody else but many people medication helping you you continue to get worse it's very easy to see why I lost hope yes. and why I gave up and why I attempted suicide. Because, again, I've been told at this point now, I'm in my early 20s, for going on a decade that I have a very serious issue of mental health and things continue to get worse. At some point, you go, well, this is my life now and I don't want this life. So, Jay, you attempted suicide twice, is that correct? That's right. Okay, what what age were you the first time? Well, so here's the thing: they came, <laughs> they came two days in a row, back to back nights. Uh, I was 23 years old. Okay, so so you were 23. Now, now take me to um, your early 20s. Take me to 20, 21, 22. Uh, during uh, leading up to that, to those, to that faithful night, um, how? How was the weight, the psychological strain, obviously, to, to, to go as far as to do a suicide attempt? It was getting heavy. At what point did you completely lose the hope and say, I'm done with life? Yeah, so that's a, another great question. I, um, you know, at, at 21, I was still pretty functioning. I would, uh, you know, there were cracks, and more than that, the plaster was starting to chip away, but... I, I was able to go about my daily life, but at 21 was when I failed out of school, uh, out of college. I um, was in a fraternity, so I had an excuse to use a lot of drugs, and uh, in a way that wasn't healthy, I should say. Yeah. If I was just smoking a joint here or there, not a big deal, but, but doing things constantly was not a good thing. Sure. Um, and... and you know, at that point, I, I, I drop out of school, I lose my jobs, and I'm really not doing much. And so the next couple of years, this gets, you know, progressively worse till the point where, again, at 23 is really where I bottomed out. 
Um, I, I, the summer of, my, uh, of 2009, I went on the road uh, and I followed a couple a, a band that I really loved. I followed them around to a couple music festivals. Uh, I was basically living out of my car. Uh, I had a house. I wasn't homeless, but I was. I spent the summer driving around, uh, living out of my car. And I, uh, you know, at these music festivals, I felt very accepted, right? Because yeah. here, everybody is different. Everyone's using a lot of drugs. You know, I was no different than anybody else. And then I had to come home and try to go back to this life that was pretty miserable. And that's when it really settled on me, you know, as I was saying earlier, uh, that there was no hope, that it, the only place that I was really comfortable and really welcome was sort of in these music festival settings and around people who understood me, but regular life wasn't that way. And, and that is when I decided that, that it wasn't going to get better and I should, I should take my own life. So take me, um, if if you don't mind. I don't know if it's if it, I mean it's a it's a dark subject, but we definitely want to kind of help people uh, who may be in a, in a struggle. Take take me to that faithful night, man, and and uh, and what you were feeling, and and kind of kind of how you uh, uh, how you how you kind of developed into that process. Well, you, you're you're definitely right. It's a dark subject, but but the reason I do what I do is. I'm going to steal a line from a guy I admire named Frank King, uh, who's also a, a mental health speaker. And he says, you know, we people who do this work like him and I, we're comfortable enough in our darkness that we can help you sit in yours. Yeah. So, you know, that's why I do what I do. Um, but, it, but it is rough, you know, it, it, yeah. it's definitely difficult. And, and that night, I, um, the first night I called a friend of mine who uh, was, a, was a very close friend at the time, and I told her that I dumped out uh, what I believed to be a lethal dosage of my medications, and, and, by, and, and to help you picture that, you know, I'm talking probably 30 to 40 pills um, on my computer, and I was ready to take them. Yeah. And this wonderful person kept me on the phone with her long enough that by the time she I, I managed to get off the phone with her. Other friends of ours had shown up at my house and stopped me. Now, as I like to joke, uh, I, I, I learned from that experience, and the next night I took the pills first and then called the same friend and said, you know, this is what I did. And uh, she texted the same people who this time, instead of coming over, they uh, they called nine one one and and a cop showed up at my door. So Jay, why did you why the phone call? You mean to my friend? Yeah. Was wow. it just um, was it just uh, was it just uh, uh, what 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 was your thought process behind the making that phone call? Well, I think that. You know, it was the kind of thing where I wanted to tell somebody why. Yeah. You know, it, 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 I didn't want it to be the thing where I just uh, sort of, you know, somebody found me the next day or something. I, I wanted there to be uh, a reason or, or, or known, my reason known. I couldn't tell you what that reason was today other yeah. than when I'm telling you where my where my mental state was. But, but I'm, I, I, you know, I'm pretty sure that was the reason for the phone call itself. So, so in the moment when you, when you took the pills, um, I, I guess that, that initial jolt, were, were you afraid, Jay? That's a great question. 
I, I don't remember being afraid. I think, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I was in such a bad space. Um, I, 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 I gotta think that I really wasn't and that, um, you know, there was more of a hope that at least the, the, the suffering would be over. And, and so when, when the cop showed up at the door, take me, take me from there. Yeah, you know, I don't really remember a whole lot because I was in the initial stages of an overdose. But what I do remember, and this is sort of a sign of of why we need to change the way that we address some of these issues. The only thing I remember is this cop walks in and does what he's been trained to do. He puts me in handcuffs and leads me out of my house in handcuffs while I'm beginning to overdose and throws me in the backseat of his cop car and with just no sort of love whatsoever. In fact, yeah. he slammed my head off the side of his car as oh, he wow. did it. Uh, not like he took my head and head, yeah, you know, right, right, he right. just was throwing me very roughly into the back seat, and I, bam, off the side of his car. And so uh, that's the last thing I really remember about that night. Um, the next thing I know, I'm handcuffed to a bed at a hospital, and then I'm, I'm out again. And the next thing I know after that, uh, I come to, and it's sort of like a scene from a movie where I can actually remember consciousness rushing back to me. And I'm in an intake center, completely alone, uh, talking to someone at this lockdown unit. And I'm like, how the hell did I get here? Where am I? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so was there ever a process of of stomach pumping or anything like that? Or was it just monitoring? You know, from what I've been able to ascertain, it was a lot of monitoring. Um, My aunt is a therapist and... Uh, that night, she she was she was at the hospital with me. Uh, they called my my parents. My parents were out of town, so they called my aunt. And um, apparently, you know, they were like, "All right, we're gonna handcuff him to this bed because I was thrashing and all this kind of stuff." And we'll monitor him. And she said, "Great, I'm not leaving his side." And so, being a trained therapist who knew what to watch for in case of a fatal overdose. She apparently sat with me the entire night to make sure I didn't sort of cross over that that line. So, Jay, when you when you woke up and you figured out what was really happening, you were in the hospital. When it when you started to come to grips with the fact that yes, you tried to attempt suicide, um, you're still alive. There's these people here now. You're found out. Now you're chained to a bed. All of this. Um, what was your feeling, man? Were you were you were you happy that you were still alive? Were you like angry that that all of this was just just take me through those emotions? Yeah, so the, the, the emotion that I most remember is anger, but not at, not at the fact that I had failed, but but at the fact that the, that the suffering was still going. You know, um, my 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 desire was for that to end, and here I am. You know, I'm starting to question. Because, like I said earlier, I'm not getting any better. So I'm starting to question the, the, the whole industry of therapy at this time. And and I'm in a situation where I have no choices anymore, right? Because yeah. one of the things that, that is true about being in an inpatient center, uh, a lockdown unit, is you have lost all rights towards your own des- uh, desires, your own choices. 
uh, I was in a situation where if I didn't take my medication, I would sit there until I took my medication. Uh, if I didn't eat, I would sit there until I ate. You know, they're, they're, it's basically jail, but, but a little bit nicer. And so um, that was, was produced a lot of anger because, you know, here I am, I'm not getting any better. And instead of being in a situation where I can have a choice, the, the, the repercussion was now I'm in a, a situation where I have no choices. So let me ask you, <clears throat> what about what about family? What was family to you in the moment? Well, in the lockdown year, um, I, I, I was surrounded by family. I, I remember distinctly my mother coming at one point and, and one of my brothers coming with her. Uh, and every day that I was there practically, uh, two of my grandparents came to have lunch uh, with me, um, it was it was difficult because you know there was part of me going I don't want people to see me like this, and then the other part of me going, you know, this thing is open ended. Who knows how long I'll be here? So, on some sense, having you know family visiting at least makes it better. Were they doing uh, psychological evals on you during this time, or or was everybody just kind of leaving that alone for a minute? No, there was constant that i mean you you had to in this lockdown unit you had to meet with a therapist you had to um do group stuff uh and there was all sorts of art therapy and you know we got to go to the gym and stuff like that um you know it's it's a mixture of uh horrible memories and also you know the, the the interpersonal relationships i couldn't tell you the names of other than a couple of people that were there with me um, and yet, in that moment, we were family because we're all in this horrible situation together. Yeah, and and you know, I, I want you to take me out of the darkness and and all of that, and how you kind of came to the revelation of wanting to help people. But I don't want to lose the uh, intensity of the moment right here. What's going on in this in this dark? place you're you're at and so because somebody may be listening to this and be in a dark place themselves um when you took me back to 21 failed out of school lost all hope you were traveling with this band all of this stuff man were there any flags was there anything that someone could could spot within themselves or within other people that may be around them that may be saying hey, we may have a problem here. Definitely. So uh, I'll answer that two ways. Number one, before all of this happened, I went on a trip to the Middle East with my fraternity brothers in, uh, this would have been 2008, and I'm going through security at uh, the, the airport in New York, and TSA pulled me out of line because by this point, everywhere I go, I'm carrying around a backpack full of pill canisters, all yeah. of my pills that I'm misusing. And uh, they pulled me out and they say, essentially, there's no way we believe you're not a drug dealer right. uh, because I've got so many pill canisters. And they search me, like, like head to toe search me, um, thinking I might be smuggling other drugs and all this kind of stuff. And, and I'm like trying to convince them, look, my name is on all these bottles. The same therapist is on all these bottles. Um, that should have been a red flag. Yeah, right? 100%. Somebody completely independent looks at everything I'm taking and goes, not one person could be, could be you know, taking all this. Uh, 
like you must have a really bad problem and we think it's dealing so that should have been a red flag yeah. it was not now the other side of this is after i get out of the lockdown unit i'm released from that uh, facility after three weeks uh to, to my parents who send me off to a long-term care facility in massachusetts uh what we would have called 50 years ago a mental institution and uh, there is where I start to actually pick up on red flags. And, and, and those red flags are things like, you know, getting to know people with my diagnosis of bipolar uh, for whom medicine is helping. Um, and also getting to meet people who are experiencing similar struggles as me and their label is substance misuse. Wow. And that's where it finally starts to click for me that this is not what I've been told now since I was a teenager. This is something different. The problem was I had that revelation. My therapist did not. And so to them, uh, by the way, I have my in-house therapist notes. Um, About two years ago, I opened records requested from this uh, from this treatment center, my own records. And I said, look, I have a right to this. And they said no at first. And I had to get a lawyer to write a letter saying he has the right to these. Yeah. Uh, and they finally sent it all. And it's fascinating because I, you can read in there how the therapist himself is doubting my diagnosis. Wow. But, but he isn't willing to, to say, look, this may not be the case. And so we're going to do something different. And I it, it also in these notes, it, it, he has his own notes from the day that um, I, I walked into his office and said, I want to try getting off my medication. And he says in there, he kind of hedges his bets. He goes, you know, I'm not really uh, for this idea. The only way that I'll allow this is if uh, we get off everything and start over. And I very clearly was against that. And so after three months in this lockdown, you know, in this uh, long-term care facility, uh, I did the only thing that was in my power, literally the only thing I had left, and that was I checked myself out. Wow. And I was there against my will, but I wasn't court-ordered. And so because of that, I was able to say, I'm getting out of here. Yeah, yeah. And and going through that and, and seeing some of those uh, type things and, and, and those flags, um, what, what should – were you getting – all right. So we have this long history of of substance abuse and all of that. Man, are you even getting high at this point? Like, or is it like, because I hear a lot of times with drug abuse, substance abuse, uh, after a while, it just becomes a part of who you are and, and you don't even enjoy it anymore. You're not even getting high on the supply anymore. It just becomes feeding your... Uh, your nature does that make sense yeah that's um that's a really great question so yeah there's a sort of a a two-pronged answer to that i uh was you know in a constant state of um i don't even want to say high because uh my drugs that i took every day weren't making me high but if i didn't take them I would start going through withdrawals gotcha. and there were plenty of mornings uh, where I was, you know, curled on my bathroom floor because I hadn't taken my drugs quickly enough. That being said, when you are on this constant state 
of inebriation that I was because I was misusing all these medications. Uh, when you're as medicated as I am, I was at the time, uh, and you want to change the way you feel, you're going to have to use a lot of drugs. So, you know, I was smoking weed constantly because I was in such a rough state that if I wanted to relax, if I wanted to come down at all, I, I, weed was the only thing that helped. So that's number one. Number two, when I wanted to party, uh, that's why I ended up struggling with cocaine at the end, because if I wanted to get higher than I was all the time, you know, just regular weed wasn't getting me high. It was just calming me. So I would take cocaine. So that was that was a struggle. And then number three, I was doing a lot of hallucinogens, mostly psych- uh, psilocybin mushrooms, because if I wanted to leave behind this reality that was pretty terrible, <laughs> the only option I had was to trip. Yeah. And so I was doing a lot of, of mushrooms. And most of those were good. Some were bad, as, as is the case. Um, and I would do other things too, ecstasy and um, you know, trying different stuff to, to enjoy myself. But yes, uh, the, the sort of there's sort of a two answers to your question. My my normal drugs weren't getting me high anymore, weren't changing the way I felt. But if I didn't take them, I was screwed. And so then I was taking a lot of drugs on top of them to feel differently. So when you were in the hospital and and you kind of got um, to the stunning realization that you were willing to take your own life to get past this, um, I'm assuming you went you went into a detox maybe after that. So I didn't. Okay. Uh, that's funny. It's funny. You're not wrong in assuming that. Um, but but after I checked myself out of the the long term care facility, I was intent on getting off the medications, right? And unfortunately, because I had this therapist's uh, diagnosis that was clearly incorrect, I knew that, uh, even other therapists thought that this diagnosis was probably incorrect, but I, I was not, it was not exactly um, like there were places jumping over themselves to help me, right? Yeah. Because that would mean going against uh, this, this um, you know, diagnosis I had gotten. So, I moved in with the only person that was really willing to take me in at this time, and that was my grandmother in a little town called Cornville, Arizona. And if you don't know where Cornville is, I don't blame you. It <laughs> is a suburb of Sedona. So okay. that tells you how small this is. Um, and, and she allowed me to go through detox in her uh, guest bedroom. Wow. So, yeah. So essentially, for the next three to four months, I went through what's called step-down detox. And what that means is when you're on so much medication that uh, if you stopped it you know, right away, if you went what they call cold turkey, you would literally die, which is what my situation was. Um, you do what's called step-down, and that is where you take a little bit less every day or every couple of days or whatever the case is, and eventually you get to a point where you are no longer on the medication. For me, that process took uh, about three and a half months or so. Gosh. Well, so was it painful, Jay? It was very painful. It was it was yeah. excruciating. Yeah. I, um, you know, your body is in sort of a constant state of of of. Um, withdrawal uh you know low level withdrawal for for that entire time so i've described it to help people understand imagine you've got a wound on your knee 
and every time the wound would start to heal, you reopen it at the center again so that slowly over time, the amount that is open gets smaller and smaller, mm. but you never actually let it heal until it's finally caught up that way. Yeah. That's what detox was for me. Every couple of days, it would, it would heal just a little bit, and um, I couldn't let it heal anymore because I would literally die. So uh, that, that was a three-and-a-half-month process. So what do you say to the person that is fearing uh, detox, that, that is solely uh, that's scared to death about moving into that process? Yeah, so don't go it alone. Um, I went it as alone as I could because I didn't trust the you know, medical establishment at the time. Uh, for me, that meant going to see a therapist uh, who I, I couldn't even tell you her name. I probably saw her three or four times. But her expertise for me in that moment was how to go through step uh, step down detox safely. So uh, she, you know, I, I told she and I would compare my plan or uh, what the speed that I wanted to go with the speed that she thought I could go safely, and and so that was very helpful in that respect. Um, what I will say is that uh, it is possible. There is no. Uh, substance misuse issue that is impossible to detox from and I can say that from literal experience uh, one of the drugs that I was on if you go into a detox facility on it and heroin uh, they get you off the heroin first because it's easier and heroin is really hard to detox from yeah, yeah. so I was as you know, I was in such as rough a, a, a spot as you can be, and I was able to detox. It took a long time, and it was pretty horrible, but I made it. And I can tell you that once you make it, it's better than the way you're feeling before. I can promise you that. So I love those facts that you bring to light. Number one, don't go at it alone. Number two, there is nothing that you cannot detox from. And so as much as you've done, as much as you're in, as much as you're going through, all of that, in the end, it will you will feel tenfold better than the way you are right now fighting a drug that's not even... Uh, uh, it's just it, it feels like it's just sustaining your life and it's not even for the high anymore it just becomes uh, uh, kind of who you are and where you're at man and so uh, Jay move me uh, kind of out of detox and at what point did you have this aha moment of hey man I want to help people I don't want to see people like this yeah, so I wish I could tell you that, you know, like the movie show, you, you go through a detox and the next day you're like, great, I'm on top of the world, let me yeah. help people. That's not yeah. the case. Um, it took me five years. It took me five years of being in recovery. And, wow. and there were two reasons for that. Number one, um, you know, my, my body and brain no longer were inundated with chemicals, but here I was, 20, uh, now about 24, and my brain had been denied its development for about 10 years and uh, my body was sick and so it took me a while to number one heal from this but number two for my brain and my body to catch up with each other right, right. So that's number one number two the stigma around these issues is very real and for the first five years that i was in recovery i did not tell this story at all 
you know, there were people in my life that I considered very close to me who did not know what I had gone through. And I kept this from everybody. So the aha moment came in uh, 2015 when a buddy of mine who runs a storytelling event in in Cincinnati where I'm from uh, asked me to participate. He said, you know, I'd love for you to to tell your story on stage. And uh, this this event brings influential or well-known Cincinnatians to the stage to tell this story in front of, you know, anywhere between 150 or so people. Sure. And I said, you're out of your damn mind. There's no way in hell I'm going to do that. And uh, he let it drop. And then a couple weeks later, he was like, so what about this event? I was like, dude, you're you're kidding yourself. This is never going to happen. And then he asked me a third time. And I said, no way in hell. And then I went home for dinner to to see my parents. and, And I told my dad about this offer. And uh, I've told the story a lot, and it's because it's, like, imprinted directly on my brain. Uh, He was sitting in his chair reading the New York Times, and he – I told him about this, and he lowers the paper, and he looks at me, and he goes, fear is never a good reason not to do something. And then he picks back up the paper as if he doesn't realize he just, like, blew my world apart. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So So the next day I call my buddy. I was like, hey, man, you want to get breakfast? And he, like, instantly knew. He's like, yes. And and he asked me again, and I said yes. And um, uh, I I told the story a couple months later on election night, actually, 2015. And uh, that just, you know, started this snowball. And, and, you know, a couple weeks later, I was invited to tell a – tell my story at, at a TED event, you know, TED. Yeah, the yeah, TEDx, TEDx, and, yeah. And it was a, a very, one of their smaller events, um, but it was still a TED event, and, and did that, and then went from there to the next speaking gig and the next one, and here I am five years later. So still, still going strong. So, Jay, it, it, it almost just sort of morphed out of, um, out of someone just saying, hey, people need to hear this. That's right, and and I then I saw firsthand how influential it could be. Right, I yeah. that first night I told the story, and I got off stage, and, and um, I walked over to the back of of this place and sat down by myself, and I started going through, you know, as you do in that moment. This is it. I've just ruined my life. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna have no friends. I'm, you know, everyone's gonna shun me. I'm gonna lose my career. And uh, I just sat there alone and like sort sort of wallowing. And then um, they had a halftime. I was the last speaker before halftime. And all of a sudden, you would have thought I won the Super Bowl. Yeah. It was people were rushing over to me, so proud, giving me hugs. And that really showed me, oh, I'm wrong. You know, this stigma is alive and well, but I've internalized this more than it is. And, and so that really helped me see you know, this could be a thing. This is a thing people need to hear. Listen, I'm here to tell you, as one who lost my mother to a drug addiction, I held her hand uh, while she took her last breath. I'm telling you right now, this is a live and well issue, and what you're doing is very needed. I'm telling you that now, as as of course I'm sure you you see by now. Well, I I appreciate that, and and I I don't doubt it now, Uh, but at the time, I, I would not have agreed with you, mostly... You know, because uh, so someone—it's interesting, actually. I, I've given this this 
speech a lot, and, and or not just a speech, but I've, I've, I've told my story. Yeah. I have given six or seven different speeches now. No one until a couple weeks ago uh, asked me. They said, well, well, why? And I said, why what? And they said, why did you think this? And I, you know, I was uh, talking about the, the stigma. Yeah. And it knocked me on my ass because the, the fact is nobody had ever told me don't tell this story. Yeah. Nobody had ever said, don't you dare you know, talk about this because people will shun you. The fact is, I had just internalized the way the world talks about issues of substance misuse. Mm. I had just talked, internalized the way that we label people with substance misuse issues. And so when it, it, it made me realize that in, in doing so... No, like I had continued to continue to um, keep that stigma alive and well, even as I told my story by not directly saying, you know, it's not that someone tried to keep me quiet. It's that the, the community at large teaches us that this is a thing we shouldn't talk about. Wow, that is huge, man. That is a, a, a monster revelation in and of itself. And so... Uh, somebody that's out there right now that's that that may be listening to this podcast and say, I can relate to to where you were, but I cannot relate to uh, um, to where you are now. Uh, where's the middle ground? How do you what what do you have to say to that person? Yeah, so if if you're in a place where you know this is something that you're you're hearing this and you're going man do i understand um i can tell you number one you know as i said earlier about the detox you know you like you can get there 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 is nothing like i don't i think i'm really good at what i do but quite frankly i'm not special I, I got here because I decided to put my own recovery on my back and get here. And and so you can do this. Um, I would also say that I think that I'm, I'm not going too far on a, on a limb here to say that I believe that there's somebody in your life who cares enough about you to want to help. And, and I wish that I had known that when I was at my worst because I kept a lot of this in. But, but the fact is there were so many people that loved me that would be willing to help and I just didn't ask for help. And so as I say, every time I talk, every time I get interviewed, whatever the case is, I say this on my podcast all the time, you know, reach out to somebody and if you truly, truly believe that there's nobody in your life that, that is under, gonna understand, that's gonna help you, uh, reach out to me. I'm here. You know, you can find me at my website. As we say in this uh, this line of work, we would rather spend you know two hours talking to you today than two hours attending your funeral tomorrow. So please reach out. Wow, say that one more time about the funeral. I, I've got to. Uh, <laughs> I like that. That's that's. Yeah, we we say you know honestly we would rather spend two hours listening to you today than two hours attending your funeral tomorrow. You know that's that's so huge and and people need to people need to hear that man and people need to hear this message. 
yes, don't 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 suffer in silence. Like reach out. You you guys know that you've got an open door here. Now Jay's just giving you an open door with him who's walked through uh all of this personally and 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 it's hard. I understand that, but listen, there is a better way and and it takes uh uh it's going it's is it going to be easy? No. Is it gonna be? Is it gonna be full of tears and all of that? Absolutely, Jay. Tell me. Tell me where do you stand on your medication list right now? That's a great question. I, I, I appreciate you asking this. So it gives me the opportunity to make to make this very clear. I truly believe, and I and I can't say this enough, that, that for many people, medication is incredibly needed and it's very helpful. Yes. That being said. I also believe that we as a uh, culture are too reliant on the medication. And a lot of that comes from the therapist themselves because it's easier to give someone some medication uh, than to go through the hard work as you perfectly, perfectly just said, it's going to take to, to get someone to a better place. Yeah. And, you know, I had a really interesting um, encounter long ago i was really lucky to go on a ride along i've been on three or four of these now with a first responder and this was before covid and we she was a mental health first responder she was uh in with the um, fire department here in charleston and uh whenever there was a suicide call or something like that overdose she was the first call and i got to ride along with her and see what she did every day and we went to three suicide calls in her 12-hour shift, which, by the way, you know, it, it, I can't imagine doing that every day. The so mental applause, toll. Applause to her. But we went to three of them, and there was one thing with all three of those calls, and that was they were all on high levels of medication without also undergoing concurrent behavioral work with wow. a therapist. And the sad thing is, a lot of those drugs, a lot of those chemicals that we are prescribed, it says on the bottle that one of the side effects is higher rates of suicide. And so if you're not going through a going through work with a therapist as well as, as taking some of these that's scary because we're losing lives from that that we don't have to be losing. Wow. I love that you bring up that, yes, some of these drugs are needed. So you're not standing up and screaming, uh, don't take medication. Don't allow your kid on medication. You're not saying that. You're saying that there are some mental health practices that you can absolutely uh, 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 participate in that will help walk you through the medication if it's truly needed. That's right, and and, and I, you know you you were saying this perfectly, and what the sort of to echo that, you know, uh, let's I'll give you the example of my aunt is currently fighting cancer, right, and she has had the best healthcare in the world because every time she gets a new recommendation from one of her doctors, you know, whether it's surgery or not surgery or treatment, whatever the case is. She goes and gets second, third, fourth opinions, and that's helped her make sure that other doctors agree with her doctor and that she's getting the best treatment possible. Yes. Well, that didn't happen with me, right? I got the mental health equivalent 
uh, diagnoses of cancer. I got a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, and we never got a second opinion. Wow. We never asked another therapist, hey, do you agree with this? And I can't tell you for sure that they would or wouldn't have. Who knows? I can tell you we didn't do it. Yeah. And so that is one other thing I really want to underscore. If you get a significant diagnosis for your mental health, it's okay to say to your therapist, wow, that's, <laughs> that's a really heavy thing to digest. I'm going to go talk to somebody else and make sure that they agree, and then we can we can continue forward. And if your therapist says no, that's a pretty big red flag in itself. Right, right. And and so I, I'm I'm telling you, I'm just standing um, in awe of, of of all of this. I think this is extremely uh, helpful and and beneficial to uh, not just someone who may be. Uh, going through it themselves, but also someone with a child, with a with a sibling, with a uh, a, a parent who who is struggling with drug addiction. I think this brings us a little bit more clarity into the mind, into the thoughts of uh, of what someone is is going through, and uh, and and all of that kind of kind of being said. What are some? Do you have any kind of final thoughts for our listeners? Um, who either who either know someone or are currently walking through this themselves? Um, do you have any final thoughts for them? Yeah. So uh, well, I already said reach out. Obviously, yeah. that's number one. Um, and, and and by the way, if you're hearing this and you're going, man, this is uh, great. I, I you know I could I could use some more tips. Don't hesitate to reach out. You can find me on my website, which is jshiffman.com. Um, but if you have someone in your life that you're worried about. That, that maybe that you're scared, maybe considering suicide, whatever the case is, uh, I encourage you to ask. You know, it's scary. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm not going to tell you there's some secret um, that, that, you know, will, will make it easier. There's, there's, there's flat out there's not. But if you don't, you're going to regret it if something happens. And, and I can tell you this, you know, from both experience and someone who's done just a ton of research on this. We have this false notion that if you talk about suicide, it's more likely that someone will commit suicide. And, and here's the sad truth of this. First off, that's not true whatsoever. Second off, there is a little bit of truth in it, and that is studies have shown that the more that media or movies or whatever the case is uh, shows suicide methods, those get repeated. So – when, when you hear a news report of someone famous who has ended their life and the, the report spends, you know, three paragraphs detailing what they did, that's incredibly harmful because you're basically giving someone a recipe. But talking about the suicide in itself, nothing wrong with that. And in fact, it's a great way to lower the stigma around these things and enable people to talk about them. So please, if there's somebody in your life struggling, reach out and ask them, hey, man, I'm really you know concerned. Just for my own sake, have you ever thought about suicide? Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels rough. I did. Again, there's no secret, uh, but it's trust me, trust me. It's better to ask and to be wrong than to not to ask and feel later that you wish you had. Wow. Great stuff. Great stuff, Jay. And so... Uh, once again, man, I want to thank you for your time and thank you for coming on here and uh, and dropping this uh, this piece of wisdom for us. 
Well, I, look, I, I really appreciate you having me. It's it's always a great opportunity to, to talk with yes. people who get it. Um, and look, I've done a lot of these, man, and this was a, a good one. You, yeah. you, you're a great host, and uh, I really appreciate you giving me, giving me the opportunity. Thank you, brother. If you'll just stay on the line for just a second, as for our listeners, we will see you in the next couple of days.